2: it would be a very enjoyable parliament to cover watching Scott Morrison try to negotiate with climate change independence and
3: the Nationals yeah. so maybe you could have like deputy prime minister Barnaby Joyce and deputy prime minister Allegra Spender <laughs>
1: Hello, Potters. Welcome to the show. You're on Australian politics and I'm Catherine Murphy. And with me today in the pod cave are... Josh Butler. Amy Ramakis. Daniel
4: Hurst.
3: Sarah Martin. And,
1: and
0: we're we are answering, answering your campaign questions. questions.
3: And it's week three. Yes. <laughs> and we're still alive. <laughs> we're still alive. Are we,
1: though? <laughs> <Yes>. Are we? <laughs> I'm dead inside. It, it is arguable, <laughs> yes. Um, okay. So um, just a couple of quick things uh, up top. Paul is not with us today because he's not been well. Hello, Paul. We know you'll be listening. Uh, Sorry you are not on this episode. Also, I just want to say thank you to all of the people who are listening to these episodes in very large numbers. Uh, I can say on uh, Twitter today I had 200 questions when I called for submissions and through our email address that I will remind you about at the end of this episode, we have... 12 pages of questions. The answer to all of them is yes. (laughs) So that is both a herogram to the audience and also a bit of an expectation-setting exercise. Sadly, we cannot answer all of the questions every week but uh, we will answer as many of them as we possibly can. And, you know, thank you for the support and the input. We appreciate it. Now, Josh, you're up first this week, uh, and we've got a bunch of media questions, which I think will not surprise the audience, uh, from Julia uh, starting off. Uh, why is the press pack obsessed with gotcha questions at today's, and just to be clear, we're recording on Thursday, at today's press conference with uh, Anthony Albanese hysterically chasing a gaffe, Instead of talking policy, name the five points, Julia says. Why do they think these questions are important when they don't advance any ideas at all? Related, Josh, from Sean B. Why is the press so impolite at press conferences? The treatment of the opposition leader today, again, this is is Thursday, was disgraceful and unprofessional. Questions being screamed at him, trying to pressure him into a stumble. It was disgusting to watch.
4: Josh, what say you? I'll start with the second one first. I mean, you can you can think they might be impolite. Um, sometimes the, it's just like a mathematics issue. Like there's 20 journalists at a press conference and they might only take 10 or 15 questions. Like everyone wants to get their question in, obviously. Um, but, you know, I think it, I think people sort of saw this a lot through the pandemic as well of like when we saw these press conferences from premiers um, being run like, you know, 24-7. Like it was the first time a lot of people had... Seen press conferences like that in, you know, in the round in in the, you know, extended periods. Um, that's kind of how they often are. I mean, it's a leader. It's an election campaign. People have questions about certain things, and you know, obviously at this point, Anthony Albanese didn't have the answer to a couple of those questions. And I think it's you know important that people push. Like it's, you know, so often especially through the campaign, like on Twitter and these sort of things, people are going, oh, why aren't you pushing Morrison more on these questions? It's like, well, it sort of has to go both ways. Like both parties do have to get pushed for answers on questions they don't want to give answers to or they can't give answers to in, in in this case. I mean, we had that big discussion about gotcha questions on literally the very first day of the campaign when Albanese couldn't name the um, unemployment rate and he couldn't name the, the official cash rate. You know, obviously we, we had these big discussions about media ethics and, and whatever a few times through the campaign. I think the reason that, you know, people are asking these questions and he's getting these kind of questions relatively often like sort of pop quiz sort of stuff like what's this and what's that and da-da-da. I don't necessarily think it's always, you know, as the question sort of said, like it's not really advancing the discussion or whatever. Um, I think in some cases that's that's true, but you know this NDIS one today. Like, Labor has talked about this a lot. They've made this one of the big planks of the election campaign. I think if it was a question, like a really detailed question, like you know how much extra funding are you going to put in NDIS over the next four years, over the forward estimates in this particular policy. I mean, like you can't expect the the leader of any party to be across that sort of minute detail. But like the six points weren't. In, in, in this is my personal point of view, the six points weren't incredibly detail-oriented. The six points that he eventually read out were like, we're going to strengthen the NDIS. We're going to um, increase staffing numbers. Like, they weren't incredibly detailed questions that you shouldn't expect him to know the answer off the top of his head too. Mm-hmm. Obviously, there's been so much discussion about this online already. Um, I think I think I saw Michelle Grattan tweet something like, you know, like obviously jokingly, like you know, should we ask him to recite his timetables next? I mean, you know, there is a certain level of detail you should expect people to to know or to not know, but. It is it is a tricky one. I mean, obviously, you know, the advisor handed him the book and he had it right there and he can read it out. And, you know, and as people have said, like, this is why you have shadow ministers. This is why you have, you know, dedicated spokespeople for Treasury or for the NDIS or for, you know, whatever, aged care, health, um, who would be able to answer those questions. But literally yesterday, Anthony Albanese said, we've got a great six-point plan for the NDIS and here's how we're going to do it and it's so comprehensive and it's so great. I think you should be able to answer that sort of stuff off the top of your head. Um, I
2: um, I think it's interesting that Anthony Albanese didn't immediately turn and say... I don't have that on the top of my head. Here's our policy booklet, uh, and, I'll, and I'll, you know, and I'll get that for you. And I think one of the reasons why is because this campaign is so fraught now because of the gotcha questions that have you know, mostly hammered Anthony Albanese, that he now feels like he can't take a pause and say. I'm going to get the answer to that, because that just leads to a whole more a whole group of people going, How do you not know the answer to this? How do you not know the answer to this? That partly is because uh, campaign journalism particularly is quite blood in the water. Centered uh, people tend to operate as a pack in that, and you are also seeing it in in the prime minister's press conferences as well. Scott Morrison is having a lot more questions yelled at him, cutting him off, having the same question repeated. He's just uh, a lot more practiced at ignoring the those questions and just moving on. And as Josh said, everyone has a question that they need to ask, so they don't always follow up. But I also think there's something in what Sean Kelly has written about um, previously. He used to work for Julia Gillard. He's now a columnist with the Nine Newspapers, where he said that, The media has basically covered this government for three years, They're known quantities. We know what they've done. We know how they react. Whereas the opposition is an unknown quality, which allows for a lot more speculation about what could happen in the future. And so the opposition, and particularly the opposition leader, are getting a lot more questions about what could happen, what is this, what is that? Because it allows for this narrative to build around an unknown future, which for journalists can be a lot more interesting than the known. It isn't necessarily what the
1: audience wants, though. Mm. Yeah, Daniel?
0: I guess a couple of things. One, TV TV reporters are chasing images and they seem to think that these sorts of moments look good on the news or, you know, an awkward moment it sort of cuts through the choreographed nature of campaigns. I guess the only thing I'd say is we need to acknowledge that, you know, knowing the official cash rate... Or the you know all the points of the NDIS plan makes zero difference to people affected by those policies. Well,
3: I, th- I think the problem is because we going back to what Amy says. Like people s- sense there's a vulnerability there. That, that there is a there is a feeling that perhaps Albanese is not as ready for this campaign as he should be. Um, I think you know if it was me, I. Would have had my flashcards every night, got before going to bed, and I would have like done the swatting If it was like the most important test of my life, I would have. I would be. I would like to think that I had. Um, there wouldn't be a question like that that would stump me. I'm not sort of saying like you know, I'm I'm a you know a a, a perfectionist in, in any in any sense, but I just feel like he wants to be the prime minister. He's got to. He's got to. He's got to be ready for this. He's got to be ready for those questions, um, and you know, journalists sense that vulnerability. I think that's the the question mark in the mind of voters. And so he has to put himself up for that test. And I think it's reasonable that um, journalists ask him what his policies are. Like, what are are the six points of that policy? I think that is a reasonable question. I don't think that's a gotcha question. I think he should have been prepared for a question like that. He only announced the policy a couple of weeks ago. Um, I don't think Whether it's, like, the campaign um, preparedness, whether his advisors have not been sitting him in a room and, like, been a tiger mum and just been like, No, we're doing it again. (laughs) Anthony, you got that wrong. Let's start again. Like, I just feel like he hasn't had that heat put on him. And we've talked about this before in terms of, like... um, you know, he hasn't stood up a lot in Canberra over the past few years and had those press conferences with the press pack here. So I think there's a combination of journalists sensing that vulnerability and um, Anthony Albanese being not quite match fit and perhaps hasn't done the swatting that he needed to have done at this point. Mm-hmm. But maybe that's unfair. I'm open to like... No, no, I, I think I think that's absolutely fair
2: enough. I would just say, though, um, Murph, you were with him earlier in the week. How is the COVID recovery going and
1: mm. do you think that's had any impact? Um, I've got a couple of thoughts, but I just want to come back to Josh because obviously Josh kicked us off with that. Have you got any additional thoughts, having, having uh, now that we've yeah. gone,
4: gone around the room? Uh, I think what Sarah said there was interesting too. Like you know you should be prepared for these kind of questions like we can sort of sit here and i think i think maybe the question is the questions that came in were sort of like well why is this even a thing at all like why why can't we just change journalism from the inside out and these questions shouldn't be answered you know asked and that sort of thing like we can say that and and all that sort of stuff and we can sit here and go like oh we should ask gotcha questions or we shouldn't or what's the gotcha question and that sort of thing like obviously i think like you say obviously you've been on the bus for a couple of days and Sarah's on the bus for a couple of days but we haven't been on the bus in the same way that a lot of other journos have been and these there are some outlets out there that, that are going to be hostile to labour. There are some outlets out there who are going to be looking for the big, you know, the, the big spicy moment to put on TV. And I think that's, that is just a reality that you sort of have to work with. Like you have to work within the parameters of of, of what is going to happen in politics and what's going to, what kind of questions you're going to get. Like you can you can c- complain, you can criticise the fact that c- the questions are coming to you in whatever form. But like. Anthony Albanese can't sit up there and say, you know, don't ask me that. Like he has to kind of just cop, same as Scott Morrison, cop whatever you get and you're going to get some spicy questions if you're trying to be Prime Minister, sadly.
1: Yeah. Well, my thoughts uh, are, I guess, in no particular order, Amy asked me about uh, Anthony Albanese's uh, COVID recovery, having seen him at close range for several days. um, I think he's still struggling physically, actually. Um, uh, So... There's that. Um, but obviously Anthony Albanese couldn't recall the cash rate and the unemployment rate in the first week of the campaign and he hadn't had COVID. So, you know, got to keep it in perspective. I do think there is some physical depletion there that that that, that is absolutely legitimate and he's trying to push through it. And that's that's one issue. In terms of uh the nature, I, I absolutely agree with the broad sentiment here that. Uh, Anthony Albanese is auditioning to be the Prime Minister of Australia, Of Australia, it is the toughest job in the land. You will get all kinds of questions, whether they're fair, whether they're reasonable, you will get those questions. It goes with the job. And how you handle those questions is one measure of a performance in a leader. It's only one, but it is one measure of a performance. I think in general terms, uh, what troubles me about it is uh, is not the aggression... In a, in a campaign, that standard operating procedure it was much like it in 2019. If we want to compare the hostility facing a Labor leader, no one faced more hostility than Julia Gillard. And uh, what Anthony Albanese is dealing with now is a distant echo of some of the questions that were put to her over a long period of time. Doesn't make it fair, doesn't make it right, but it does make it true. Um, in terms of, though, my concern with some of these questions is they are inane. They are completely inane and meaningless. And there are a lot of questions that are not inane, that seem very hard to get answers to. Uh, I don't know how we deal with that. The other phenomenon that we're working in is one that Josh referenced, one that uh, the team has referenced, which is this fishbowl environment now that that characterises campaign coverage. Once upon a time, television cameras faced the principles. They faced the politicians now television cameras face the principals and they face the journalists the chur- the journalists are chasing moments to you know tv moments basically uh, and that creates uh, you know the environment around that is a joust it isn't a press conference and does that serve the public interest well probably not but You know, these things are complex. I suppose what I'm trying to say to listeners today is these things are complex. Um, You know, Albanese absolutely has to be scrutinised. He absolutely has to demonstrate that he's match fit. You know, no-one hands you the Prime Ministership of Australia as a pity prize, nor should they. You've got to be up to doing it. But, you know, there is something about process here that, you know, troubles me as a long practitioner of this particular art form. Uh, and I understand the frustration of the public looking at it because, at its worst, it is a circus, and and we need to do better for audiences. When when do you think it changed, Murph? Oh, look, I don't think that. I think there's elements of it that have that have not changed. Elements of it that have been absolute over certainly all of the period that I've been reporting politics. Campaigns is always aggressive, always aggressive, um, and. You know, and that's part of the role we play in the system in a democracy. You know, we, we're we not there to massage the shoulders of politicians and give them a pat on the head. That's not our job. We're there to basically see if they have the substance required to lead the country. That's what we're there for. So it's always been aggressive. I think the heightening of the aggression is a function of of digitisation, live, live rolling news coverage, social media, the, all the incentives in our businesses for clickable shareable moments and uh, and we've got we've got reporters out there on the campaign trail who are generating them you know does uh, that that creates heat doesn't create light and but these are these are deep-seated functional problems with you know with the journalism that we practice and and the and the technological impact of, you know that 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 there has been on our practice. So you know I do think we need to think about these things carefully. I appreciate the the questions from the audience on this. We are accountable. My team is accountable. We have a range of views. You know, we're trying to basically do the best we can to try and get you the best government of Australia that we possibly can by subjecting these characters to some scrutiny. So anyway, good conversation. We better move on. I think, Amy, you're up, Diles. Um, So... We have um, uh, two questions for you. One from Matt Dunn, uh, and they're kind of related. Um, My question is, is there a world where the coalition splits? The Nationals seems to be a dead weight on the Liberals with regards to issues like climate change. What's stopping the Liberals from telling the Nationals where to go? And the two parties from running against each other, <laughs> oh, you know, breaking that that already happens slightly. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, anyway, <laughs> Amy will have a much more erudite view than this uh, than me. And a, and a, a second one from Ray Kingston. Um, what's likely in the current or future coalition agreement? I did love this Ray because it just made me think about something I hadn't thought about at all. What are we likely to see in a new coalition <sighs> agreement? This I presume assumes a Morrison. Victory, what do we see in the next term?
2: Well, to the first question, why, why don't the Liberals tell the Nationals where to go given the... Uh, um disagreements that they've had on certain issues is pretty simple. The Liberals cannot form government without the Nationals and the Nationals wouldn't have a chance in hell of forming government without the Liberals. So they rely on each other in in that way. So when we talk about, you know, like the chaos of like needing, you know, a vote or working with the crossbench, the Coalition has to do it pretty much every single time that they're in government. And we've seen some of that horse trading With the recent climate uh, debate that they've had, the most recent climate debate, where you had the nationals essentially holding the Liberals to ransom over uh, what they would allow to be in the climate policy. That, that's the simple answer. They need each other um, and people tend to forget that because one of the biggest things Labor has to overcome these days in terms of winning outright majority government is that uh, they are increasingly popular in inner city seats, slightly less prop- popular in the outer urban seats uh, where they used to have a lot of ground and finding it very difficult in the region's to hold ground, which uh, used to be uh, part of their heartland. Uh, And so Labor struggles to do that, but the Liberals certainly couldn't do it either. They need the Nationals. What that means, though, is that we're currently seeing, uh, as what John Howard used to call broad church, we're currently seeing a lot of fractures within that broad church. I think part of that reason is Scott Morrison comes from um, the middle section uh, or, or faction where he will go wherever the political winds are blowing him in terms of who he supports, whereas at least from my observations and readings, John Howard used to be a lot more collaborative in that he would let the moderates have a win every now and then. He would keep key moderates in his cabinet to hear from them and get their views across so everyone felt like they had a hearing in the party. I think in the in the Liberal Party room, we're not hearing so much from the moderates anymore. We're hearing a lot more from the right factions. We're hearing a lot more from the in the joint party room from the nationals and what they want. And what that means is you are see, starting to see a, a, a fracture with the coalition itself and you're starting to see that play out in the electorate as Sarah and Paul and Josh and and Dan and Umurth have all reported on, the inner city liberals are really suffering because of that. What, what happens from here on out, uh, I, I don't know. Labor had to reckon with their own issues with this when it came to how they dealt with the Greens and their own inner city policies, uh, how they spoke to the cities as opposed to how they spoke to the regions. About a decade ago, they've only probably just worked that out. It's taken about 10 years. I think the Liberals are probably going to have to have a pretty big think, no matter what happens in this election, about how they move on from what has happened over the last three years. Uh, and in terms of what's in the coalition agreement,
3: goodness. Mm. Yes. Any I mean, what God, we we'd all love it. to know Is that. there Anything left to fund? I mean, I feel like <laughs> they've got their gazillion dollars for every, you know, mobile black spot and boondoggle that Barnaby could possibly have wanted. Yeah. Is having there, said
0: that, we haven't. When you say what will we see in it, we won't we, see it, will we?
3: No. Well,
2: we've never, we've never seen it. I mean, can they have any more cabinet positions? Yeah. Like, do you know? Do we have like another five nationals, half the party, in the the cabinet. We, we just don't know. I mean, Sarah's been doing excellent work with Nick Evershed in keeping track of the spending. And Barnaby Joyce has been running around this country, just promising dollars absolutely everywhere, with not a huge amount of scrutiny outside of, you know, the work of like what Sarah and a couple of other journalists are doing kind of Trying to keep track of that, and that's just because the Wombat Trail is is pretty quiet this time round. Usually, it has a pretty large press contingent following it, and it doesn't this time round. And Barnaby is, I think, uh, making hay where he's popular. There is the Barnaby line, of yes. course. Now, Gabrielle Chan, good yeah. evening.
1: Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it was quite a good concept, wasn't it? Yeah, the yeah. Barnaby the, line.
2: There absolutely is a Barnaby line. We're not seeing him particularly south of Newcastle, as um, as Gabby Chan pointed out. If only the internet didn't exist. And then,
3: you know, <laughs> yeah, no one exactly, got, no you could you never could find find so out. much more effectively, couldn't you?
2: Yeah. Uh, but um, it is the yeah, coalition. Yeah, so there's a, plus, yeah. See, there's a there's plus
3: there about
2: some. the internet. You know, <laughs> the coalition agreement is something that we would all like to see. But what it, what else it could potentially have, given the amount of funding promises and cabinet positions and you know power structures and restructures that have gone on, I don't think that there's much more for the Nationals to get other than maybe a statue to Barnaby
1: outside Parliament House. <laughs> <laughs> every child gets a statue of barnaby mailed uh, by direct mail um yes excellent there's there's only um there's there is um uh, just one more thought I would add to that very excellent summary uh, in terms of coalition splitting. Not that I think you know this will happen, but I suppose there are scenarios where uh, if the if a couple of teal independents do win uh, and and they are significant players in a balance of power negotiation, then the presence of the Nationals does complicate what Scott Morrison can give these people by way of undertakings on climate policy. I mean that is like about eight thousand steps down the road, but that that is a scenario that we. We could see.
2: But if that scenario came out, I think it would be a very enjoyable parliament to cover watching Scott Morrison try to negotiate <laughs> with climate change independence. And the Nationals. Yeah. So Maybe
3: you could have, like, Deputy Prime Minister Barnaby Joyce and Deputy Prime Minister Allegra Spender. <laughs> like, that could be quite amusing. Unity, and, and and a like unity the Greens government. have, like, a co-deputies. <laughs> and depending on where you live in the country, you either get your
1: mail-order Barnaby statue or, or your Allegra statue. Yeah, I can't like possibly, it. Possibly. Possibly okay. that. Yes, anyway, beautifully done. Uh, moving on, thank you. Uh, we have Daniel uh, and we have a question from Graham McLeod. Uh, who says, uh, or notes... Uh, there's increasing pressure on governments to spend more on health, aged care, the NDIS education. So why are both political parties fixated on limiting taxation? That's your first question. And then on a different topic from Val Smith, uh, she asks, can someone please ask what's happening with the family from Biloela? I'm, I am pronouncing Biloela. that correctly, aren't I? Biloela. Uh, Can somebody ask the Labor Party their stance on this poor family? Two daughters born in Australia. This is a disgrace. Thank you says Bell so let's deal with taxes first
0: okay so taxes probably simplest explanation is you know bracket creep is something that happens over time and so there's sort of a bit of a political imperative to look at cutting taxes it's always an, it's it's also an easy headline for treasurers to go for you know there aren't always direct levers to assist people um, financially but you know showering them with cash seems to be a tried and true um, uh, method via via the tax system, um, look at 2019. Labor proposed some reasonably modest changes to some tax concessions, and they didn't win the election. Obviously, there are a bunch of factors at play, but, you know, <laughs> it's sort of like you get chastened by that sort of thing. Yeah. And so people in in opinion polls from time to time say, yes, we would like, we'd be prepared to pay higher well, taxes well, to fund X, Y and Z services. Well, they do consistently, But, but electorally... Yes,
1: they don't vote for it
0: correct. Mm. So, you know, maybe there's structural issues there, but really it seems like it's there's not appetite for actually doing that in the sort of the low tax uh, slogan does have electoral appeal.
2: Yeah. Yeah, And and you're seeing that play out where the Treasurer's debate was this week and you saw Josh Frydenberg start to prosecute the 2019 arguments against Jim Chalmers about what Labor potentially could do on tax based on policies that they had three years ago. So they obviously still see there's uh, ammunition to be used in Labor's old policies, which they've dropped.
0: It's the risk of electoral backlash, but also the risk of media backlash. You know, there's, there's strong sort of institutional media factors at play uh, where, you know, major Players uh, oppose higher taxes to pay for more services, so that sort of needs to be acknowledged as well. Um,
3: Freidenberg and Chalmers were both asked about future funding for NDIS, and Freidenberg's answer was like, "Oh, we'll grow the economy." You know, the, yes. neither of them had the answer. But you know, it's also remember that um, uh, Morrison briefly did propose a, a, a yeah, small a increase to the levy yeah. to fund NDIS, and then you know they decided they didn't need that. So yeah. you know, there's been sort of like people dipping their toes in the water um, and eventually Australia is going to have to have this conversation because it's, the, the spending growth is so astronomical yeah. on, on Medicare, NDIS and aged yeah. care that there's going to have to be some sort of solution.
1: And in long we're time. about
3: to hand a Motza
1: back through stage three tax cuts. Yes. Yes.
0: So Sarah, yes. Sarah pursued that question at the press club the other day and you know, on behalf of the audience and there weren't any sort of tangible responses, so yeah. not ready for that debate. But, I,
2: but on, on that, I think the stage three tax cuts are going to force the debate because given the state of the budget at the moment, there are huge questions over whether uh, Australia can actually afford those legislated tax cuts. Uh, and, and that's the ones that we're going to basically give those who earn the most a, a flatter tax rate so that they'd be paying the same amount as I think it's people earning $48,000, $49,000. So, um, that is a huge loss of... Of revenue to to Australia to to the budget's bottom line, uh, and it's not. It, we're in a completely different world that we were when those tax cuts were introduced, and I think that is going to force this conversation because you cannot have the NDIS Medicare pensions growing and then say, oh by the way, we're going to give everyone a flat tax rate and then also have the
1: economic growth be the answer as to how we're paying for it all. Yeah, and well and and inflationary pressure driving up the price of debt. Daniel,
0: Billow Wheeler ongoing issue. Uh, I wouldn't rule out the idea that the government might do something on that front before election day, but Mm -hmm. I have no knowledge of that. It's just a possibility. We know that Barnaby Joyce, speaking of coalition agreements, has been one of the characters pushing within the government for some action. Um, Simply on the Labor position, Christina Keneally went to WA a few days ago and met with the family and then was saying that if, if the Morrison government doesn't allow them to return home to Bilo Wheeler, an Albanese Labor government would. So mm. pretty clear pledge there.
1: Okay. Uh, then, and hopefully that's brought you up to date, Val. Thank you for your question. Sarah, my yes. lovely, you are up. Now, Jason Aravanas has my favourite question of this episode. <laughs> well done, Jason. Thank you, Jason. You win a prize. A uh, no, Barnaby statue. The <laughs> or an Allegra yes. statue. Anyway, we'll see. Um, okay, so if your only goal, this is Jason's question, if your only goal was to become our, was to be or become Prime Minister, would you rather be Scott Morrison, Josh Frydenberg or Peter Dutton right now?
3: <laughs> <laughs> it's such a great question it and is. my brain did sort of bend in a few different ways before I came to, to this answer. But um, I think you got to think about the, how quickly you want you want we want you have this prize in mind. But um, I think ha- if we're going to rank them, Scott Morrison won, because at the moment he's got like a forty seven percent chance of remaining the prime minister. So I think he, you would you would yeah. most likely mathematically he's in the best position to be prime minister in the shortest amount of time. Yeah. After that, I think it's a really interesting question, and I would actually go. Peter Dutton, I think, over Josh, because I think there's a very high chance that Josh is going to lose his seat, and so Peter Dutton's more likely to become leader, and if he, I imagine he'll be a very um, pugilistic uh, opposition leader, so then I think he's probably got a good chance at some point, if not after one term, after two terms, unless he blows up the joint, and then he's rolled, but Josh isn't there anyway in that scenario. Um, So I think in sad news for Josh Frydenberg, who is is already quite sad, um, I think I would would (laughs) rank him him, I would make like him third I, in this contest. I, I look forward to the correspondence part yeah. of this
1: podcast <laughs> episode, Sarah. I'm just saying that, but but, but fantastic. Okay, mm-hmm. what are, uh, I, I, I totally
2: agree with Sarah, but I don't. I think even if Josh doesn't win his seat, he would still be third in that contest because I think that within. The coalition, well, within the Liberal Party, there seems to be more support for Peter Dutton to be the heir apparent than Josh Frydenberg at the moment, which again is making Josh Frydenberg a very sad person. But uh, that just seems to be where they want to go.
0: Some of the teal independents, even if Josh Frydenberg is re elected in his seat of Kuyong, a bunch of teal independents could get up so that changes, you know, takes out a few moderates from the Liberal Party. So yeah. there could be a number shift towards Dutton.
1: Yeah, and also, I mean, then we have the fascinating i Phenomenon that we did kind of flag, courtesy of Sally Rugg, really on last week's episode. You know whether the Liberal Party in that scenario, like if uh, if uh, Freidenberg is uh, doesn't uh, does uh, loses his seat, uh, brackets look forward to the correspondence on this one. Um, uh, if he does lose his seat, if if others do, if it's you know if there's more than a handful of these departures, then what does the Liberal Party become? Does it become the Republicans? Like what what happens then? Like.
3: You know. c- c- can someone ask us for the next Ask Me Anything? What happens if both Josh and Peter Dutton lose their seat? Because it's quite a fun chapter. <laughs> exactly, Jason. Did you hear that? Yeah, you Jason,
1: come back. Just yeah, a hint. Come for back. Next time. Come back next week. Let's do it, Robert.
0: Come <laughs> on down. We don't write our own questions. We even you know ask you to ask <laughs> us questions so we can address it.
3: Oh my God, we've gone totally meta. Last last
1: question yep. is from Evan Mulholland yep. who uh, who. Uh, who says, do you believe, as some do, that community grant programs are a form of corruption? And how do you marry that with the broad belief in local communities that the ability to secure funds for their electorate is the mark of a good local member? What do you think the process is to get this right? Should grant programs be decided by public servants in Canberra or those who are elected? That is such a good question. Evan, thank you. It Sarah. is such
3: a good question, and I feel like this is one that would take quite a few hours we could do, to, we to could adequately... actually do a whole episode on yeah, this, you could. Actually. I mean, I think as a starting principle, if corruption is the abuse of public funds for private gain or private political gain, then on that definition, then clearly pork-barrelling does give the um, incumbent an advantage. And that also gives them a direct financial advantage if that helps them to stay in government. Um, But having said that, I don't think that um, a local MP shouldn't be able to advocate for worthy local projects. And I think a mark of a good MP is to successfully advocate for um, those local community projects. So um, in terms of the process, obviously the process has to balance those two things and um, the process has to be robust enough to ensure that, um, you know, that merit is taken into consideration and um, you're not having a situation where, you know, um, projects are not, worthy projects with good local advocates are not being funded yeah. because of, um, Political you know, otherwise otherwise yeah. corrupt um uh, you know, objective. So um, it is a thorny one and it did make me th- think a bit about how how you, you know, what the perfect system is for that. Um, and I was sort of thinking back, like I was trying to remember, I didn't have time to Google it before I came in, but, you know, it wasn't like didn't Abraham Lincoln, like he got into politics he was advocating for something over the river, like he like there was ah. a bridge or something like that, which yeah. I'm probably going to get all sorts of correspondents telling me how wrong <laughs> I am. But anyway, <laughs> um, you know, it, it, Clearly people want their local member to get projects funded in their seat. Like that's part of the deal. Part of democracy, yeah. And that goes back to representative democracy and having a good advocate for your seat. But if it's, um, you know party directors sitting in campaign headquarters with a, with a spreadsheet and working out which projects need to be funded in which parts of which seats because that equals the X many votes and that's yeah. Yeah. clearly um, not representative democracy and how it should be working.
1: Yeah, so uh, really good question. Thank you for it. Now, just very quickly because we ran over a bit because I started raving in the media section of this podcast, um, uh, just two last, uh, just quickly. Um, from I, I, I just like this because it sort of pushes us into territory we wouldn't normally get into. One from Cameron Golden-Cooper who asks, what do you think makes a good Prime Minister and how does that differ from what the public and media consider makes a leader electable? I think
2: conviction and a collaborative approach And I think that that differs from how the media and and the public see it, because a lot of the best decisions that have been made in politics haven't been particularly popular ones. Mm. Uh, And I'm thinking of John Howard when he uh, banned the sale of Mm, guns guns. in Australia. That was not a popular uh, move uh, and it was particularly not popular within his own constituency. But you had him stand up uh, with the nationals leader, uh, Tim Fisher, and, and address the crowds and say, This is why we're doing this and it, it's going to, to matter and it's going to make Australia better. Uh, you saw a lot of that during the Curtin prime ministership um, and chiefly afterwards, where they basically said, You know, we're going to build houses for our return servicemen and we're going to ensure sure that they have jobs and we're going to spend a lot of money doing this, but it's going to make Australia better. So you've had these decisions made, which were not necessarily always popular because of either, you know, people love their guns or they love budget bottom lines, but they did make Australia better. Mm. And I would love to see a return to that. Here,
1: mm. here, Daniel?
0: I guess a serious commitment to the task, um, a sense of, bringing the country together, Uh, looking at what's happened in the US in the last few years, I'd have to say a core uh, important thing that is an important trait for an Australian Prime Minister, or should be, is respect for institutions, upholding institutions, uh, looking at ways to build trust in politics uh, and in governance. And I mean, that last point, really, I mean, we don't want to go down the track, as we've seen in the US, where there's sort of a vast number of people who now don't believe in the election results.
1: Yes. Yes. And so we've got conviction, we've got dignity and institutional respect. Sarah, what do you reckon?
3: Um, can I say I think a good prime minister is like a charismatic nerd like you want <laughs> you want them to have all those lovely leadership qualities and the courage of their convictions and you want them to be able to you know explain in a in a in a in a way that really communicates genuinely with people why those things are important um, you also obviously need someone to have the intellectual heft to be able to do that um, I also think um, someone who is thoughtful and uh, and in a way, non-ideological, like someone who can actually approach each issue and see the uh, see arguments on both sides and consider um, arguments and come up with the best um, solution for whatever you know thorny issue is they they need to come up with. So. Um, yeah, you know, I think probably like Peter Malinowski seems to be a very uh, like he's sort of the model leader at the moment and I think he is a charismatic nerd. Um Jacinda Ardern. And Jacinda Idern. Yeah. So I I think um but you know, go I completely agree with what Amy said. I just wonder whether that type of uh, that type of leadership is much more difficult in today's modern media environment, um, which obviously makes those big reform things much more difficult. And you know what? Like, I think the major parties have only got themselves to blame because they've become so adept at negative campaigning, and now it's just yeah, everyone's a hostage who, to yeah, it now. Exactly.
1: Everyone's good campaigning
0: doesn't mean good governing.
3: No, and that's that's a serious
1: thing that we need to look at in this country and around the world. I think, you know, amen on all of these points on on good Prime Ministers. Um, so thank you, Cameron. And last one, wrapping up, Jason Daniels asks... Will it be over soon? <laughs> it's 16 <laughs> days from today
2: or about four swimming pools of tequila, depending on how you like to measure things.
0: Soon, Jason. Yeah, yes. Soon.
3: The, yes. The last Ask Me Anything of the campaign will just us all be like rocking, sobbing <laughs> in a room.
1: Or well, with, possibly with several glasses of wine in our hands at the same time. Anyway, look, thank you all. Um, uh, and just to clarify, you, you may have thought, oh, my God, where did Josh Butler go in that conversation? Just to be clear, we weren't snubbing him in that final run of questions. We just He just had to sub out to file a story uh, after leading that segment on the media. So, um, uh, so, you know, fear not. Josh is well and truly uh, with us and all is well. Um, I just want to thank you all, uh, listeners, uh, for sending these terrific questions. Thank you to the team who are just megastars, as you can hear every single week. Um, now, I'll just remind you, obviously, a lot of people send questions for these episodes to me on Twitter, and that's absolutely fine. Please continue to do that because... Um, I'm I'm just very interested in the dialogue but also I'm just reminding you on the pod now we have a new email it's australia.podcasts at theguardian.com you can send your questions there day, night, whenever uh, they will be compiled by our fantastic production team sent to us in Canberra and we will ask as many of them as we can so I'll just repeat that that's australia.podcasts at theguardian.com thank you for your attention Uh, as we We said, uh, Jason, it will be over soon. We are in the final stretch. Uh, We will see you next Saturday.
0: Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership.